that we would be focused, that we would pay attention to what you have to say to us, and we'd be obedient. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I don't know if you were like me, Wednesday night was kind of a, a, a rough night, didn't get a whole lot of sleep. How many of you got woken up at least one time by your phone telling you that a tornado or a severe thunderstorm, anyone else get woken up or kept awake? Um, part of it for me was I, I love storms, and there was like an incredible light show going on outside that I had to just stay up until midnight to watch. I, I have never seen so much lightning uh, that we, as we had on Wednesday night. I could see all the trees in the backyard, and it was just incredible. But I'm thankful for, uh, for, our, for our warning systems. It's kind of nice to know when there is a, a potential tornado bearing down on you. So you can know, okay, I probably should go to a different room in the house. Anybody spend the night in a, in a closet on, on Wednesday night? We had things ready to go in case you know, we heard the freight train coming down our street where there normally are no freight trains to know that that's a good time to, to get to a safe spot. Thankful for warnings. The howling winds, the pounding rains, and then the constant blaring of those on your phone. If you have the sound on that, I mean, that's a really scary sound, like public alert. And, you know, you're under a severe thunderstorm warning and 80-mile-an-hour winds. It's all pretty exciting, by the way. There's forecast some more of that excitement for potentially Tuesday, uh, just in case you were wondering about that. I I am thankful for warnings. Warnings are a good thing. Without a doubt, the advent of the the warning watch system from the, the weather service has saved probably thousands of lives since it's been rolled out, as forecasters have gotten better and better at predicting the weather. I know it's super easy to knock those guys to be, well, they said it was going to rain. Think about how many times they actually get it right. It's kind of incredible to be able to predict the weather. If you lived 100 years ago, you could literally have a hurricane come in, and you would have no idea that it was coming. Just look up the, the Galveston hurricane from, it was like, 1900. Like, absolutely devastating. They had no idea what was about to hit them, and it flattened the city of Galveston, Texas. Warnings are a good thing. But we can also think of some kind of silly warnings um, that you can, you can read labels. Go home sometime and just look at all the labels around your house, all of the warnings. You know, you go to McDonald's and there's just the, the infamous warning about the contents of the cup may be hot. And you're like, it's hot coffee, right? Like there's a, there's a lawsuit behind every warning label. But generally speaking, warnings are a good thing. They alert us to danger. They alert us to things that we need to be aware of. As we come into Luke chapter 12, this entire chapter is taken up with a series of warnings, a series of warnings. In fact, Jesus is going to warn in this chapter against seven deadly spiritual dangers. Now, we're not going to look at all seven of those dangers this morning. There are a lot of verses in Luke chapter 12. There are 59 verses, and I don't think you guys want to be here that long for me to walk through all of them this morning. But just know that's sort of the theme of where we're going in, in Luke chapter 12, seven deadly spiritual dangers. We've all heard of the seven deadly sins, seven deadly spiritual dangers. They're, they're different, but uh, the seven deadly spiritual dangers. And what's interesting about these dangers, they're not the things that we would think. We'd think, okay, big spiritual danger would be you know, adultery or, or murder or robbing banks. Don't do those. Those are really bad things. By the way, don't, don't do those things. Those are really bad things. But the dangers that Jesus is at pains to alert his disciples to, are things like hypocrisy. They're things like fear, shame that would silence us, greed, just trying to get more and more stuff. He tells the story about the guy who tears down his barns and builds bigger barns so he can trust in the accumulation of his wealth. Here's one, anxiety. 
How many of us put anxiety in the category of a deadly danger in a bottle with skull and crossbones, like, don't drink, this could kill you? Anxiety, worry, right? Like, those are things that we tend to sort of overlook, and Jesus is like, watch out, danger, get, to a, get away from this. He talks about passivity, people who aren't paying attention, aren't ready for the Lord's return. He talks about ignorance, people who don't know what's going on. Ignorance, passivity, hypocrisy, greed, all of these things. Jesus says these are deadly spiritual dangers. And the sense, of a, the sense of danger is heightened when we remember the context. What is going on? Our series is called Journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is in the final months of his uh, earthly ministry. We are moving towards the cross. If you remember back in Luke 9, uh, we begin the journey in verse 51. Time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We're getting all of these vignettes and these accounts and these messages he presents as he begins to march to the cross. And as he goes, as he begins this journey to the cross, the hostility between Jesus and the religious establishment continues to escalate. We saw it grow substantially in Luke 11. Look at verse 14. As he was casting out a demon... Uh, that was dumb, it, it came to pass that when the demon was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But some of them said, he casts out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. The Pharisees are literally accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. That is a major escalation from, hey, you're not following our rabbinic traditions to, not only are you not a good Pharisee, Jesus, you're actually in league with Satan. We're talking about increasing hostility. By the end of Luke 11, we saw last week Jesus denouncing the scribes, the Pharisees, for their legalism. Verse 53, Jesus goes out and the scribes and Pharisees began to urge him vehemently. They begin to oppose Jesus with incredible hostility. And they began to provoke him to speak of many things. They're laying in wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth. They're literally trying to set traps for Jesus so they can bring him down. Like the, the die has been cast, right? The battle lines have been drawn. And it's going to come to a final clash at Golgotha. Coming along into chapter 13, verse 22, it says, He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. We are moving closer and closer to the cross. We're coming to this climax. We're coming to this clash. And in the midst of all of this hostility and all of this danger, you'd think Jesus would be like, guys, disciples... We need to really be careful and not tell the Pharisees where we're going to be. We need to like, just take precautions. Everybody turn your cell phone off so they can't track us. Like, you think that he would be going down that route. Let's think about our safety. And indeed, he is concerned about their safety, but not their physical safety. More than anything, their spiritual safety. So we begin in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. And in the meantime... When they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, like thousands and thousands of people, myriads of myriads of people, insomuch that they trod upon one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware, danger, look out. The warning is going off on the phone. Get to a safe place. Of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Notice he doesn't say, watch out for the plots of the Pharisees or the schemes. They're going to try and bring us down. Like, let's just stay away from the Watch out for their hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be made known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear upon, in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that will kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Think the Pharisees. They want to kill Jesus. They're going to want to kill his disciples. He says, don't, don't be afraid of those guys. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him. 
which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me, repudiates me, shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what things ye shall say, or what ye shall answer and what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. This escalating danger, Jesus is Warning to the apostles, the disciples is not, hey, back off, let's be a little more careful, but it is, I want you to be a bold and fearless witness for me. And I think the message is the same to you and me today. We are called to be fearless witnesses for Christ. But there's three dangers that would get in the way of doing that. One of them is hypocrisy. One of them is fear. Another one is shame. These deadly dangers, these are the first three of the seven that will be addressed in this chapter. Let's just walk through them in turn. This first danger we need to be on guard against, if we are going to be fearless witnesses for Christ in an increasingly dangerous and hostile world, we've got to deal with hypocrisy. So he says in in, in verse 1, we've got all the the multitudes. So the Pharisees, they've rejected Jesus, but he's still very popular among the people. Uh, There's huge crowds. It says they're even trotting upon one another. People are walking over each other, trying to get to Jesus. There's just a magnetism about Jesus that they want to hear his message. It's very confusing because you have the hostile Pharisees, they hate Jesus, and then the superficially committed crowds. They're just really, they're kind of into Jesus, but they are not devoted, they're not committed. Notice what it says here. It says, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all. He's not primarily preaching to the crowds. He's preaching primarily to his people. The crowds, yes, they're overhearing what he says to the apostles, but he's speaking primarily to them. He's speaking to us, to those who have committed to him. He says, watch out, pay close attention to the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeast, you throw yeast in dough, it will make the dough rise. It works its way through the whole lump of dough. So that's, that's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It wants to permeate everything, including your soul. There's danger lurking, and you've got to watch out for it. And it's not the plots of the Pharisees, but it is their hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? We think hypocrisy is, you know, saying one thing and doing another. Here's the idea. It's the idea of wearing a mask. That was what it literally meant in Greek theater. They would wear masks to play act different parts. So a hypocrite was somebody who wears a mask, Literally, to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. It is play-acting. It is pretense. It is outward show or dissembling. What is interesting is the same sin that plagued the Pharisees is a danger for the disciples. We saw last week the legalism of the Pharisees. We need to expel that from our hearts. Super easy to be like, man, hypocrisy, yeah, that's other people. But Jesus is saying hypocrisy is not just a sin that we point out in other people's lives. It's a sin that we have to guard against in our own hearts because it is like yeast in a lump of dough. It wants to work its way through. It's insidious. It is invisible. It is influential. 
You can't actually see the CO2 that's being released, right, that's making the dough rise. But you can certainly see the effects, and it results in this puffed-up sense of pride. So what does hypocrisy do? Hypocrisy sometimes will cover sin. Look back in chapter 11, verse 39. Now the Lord said unto him, to a Pharisee, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. What does hypocrisy do? Is it, it covers over this hideous sin with a veneer of religiosity. So one type of hypocrisy is the hypocrisy that covers over sin, that hides impurity and hides lust and hides greed and hides all kinds of wickedness in the heart behind this veneer of looking very spiritual and churchy. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to look very nice. I'm going to say the right things and be very pious when really what is going on in your heart and in your life and behind closed doors is rebellion against God. But there's another type of hypocrisy which could go the other direction. I think for the, for the disciples, it is to conceal their commitment to Christ. Think about this. There's hostility. There's danger. There's a theme that kind of is woven through this text of fear might make you be silent when you ought to speak. The shame of what people might say where you wouldn't confess Christ. That's also hypocrisy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your ultimate identity is commitment to him, is, is that as a Christian and sometimes we will sort of pull back and sort of be quiet and keep our heads down. That's also a form of play acting. Because who am I really? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a believer in the word. I'm someone who is pursuing the crucified Christ. But sometimes when we face shame and the pressure of the world will, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to pull back. I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to take a stand. There's a hypocrisy that hides truth. Do you realize it is hypocritical for you as a Christian to not share the gospel? Maybe that's a different way of thinking about hypocrisy. We think of the hypocrisy that pretends to be spiritual when we're not. But there's also a hypocrisy that pretends to be worldly when that's not really who you are. It is play acting. There's nothing more detestable to the world than a Christian who is trying really, really hard to fit in. It's just, it's just kind of disgusting, groveling, trying to get the approval of a world that, that hates Christ. You can see a disciple trying to do this, going to the synagogue, and, oh, these Pharisees are awesome, and I'm going to just kind of go along with them, even though I know they're hostile to Jesus. Going along and being friends of the world that hates Christ. You ever find yourself trying to cloak your Christianity under a veneer of just sort of cultural relevance, of trying to go along with everybody else at work and laugh at the jokes that they have and be like, oh, yeah, I like that movie as well, when you know, you know deep down in your heart, you know full well that that's contrary to God's word. That is a form of hypocrisy. You ever find yourself downplaying your Christian commitment to just get along with other people? So these are some expressions of hypocrisy, but verses 2 and 3, he tells us about the exposure of hypocrisy. He's saying, okay, why is it foolish to be a hypocrite? I mean, on one level, you could see, hey, this is actually a pretty easy way to live life, is just to put on a mask and go through and change the mask depending on what group of people you're with. So when you're with people at church, you put on the church mask. When you're at work, you put on the work mask. And you are different people with different groups. Hey, it can really make your life a little bit easier. Except it doesn't. Verse 2, 4, here's the reason. Here's the reason for the warning. There's nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Neither hid that shall not be made known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in the closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You notice the future tense. There's a contrast between what you're doing now and what will happen then. This is something that Jesus will lean into more and more as he gets closer to the cross. The reality of future judgment. Why must we guard against hypocrisy? Because judgment is coming. 
Why must we guard against hypocrisy? Because one day everything will be revealed. Why must we guard against hypocrisy? Because the masked actors will be unmasked in the end. Eventually, the nature of the heart will be seen either in the life now or on judgment day then. The contents of the cup that's filled with filth will one day be exposed. The real character will eventually be revealed. That's what he's saying in verses 2 and 3. So verse 2 makes a general principle. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed. So things that you're like, I've got this hidden. Nobody knows about this part of my life. Eventually, judgment day, it is going to be revealed before God. Verse 3 now works out the implication. Therefore, okay, if the principle of verse 2 is true, therefore, whatever you've spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. You see the contrast between darkness and light. That which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So you think about, like, you go to the, the, the closet is the idea of the inner room, the place where all the precious possessions were stored in, the, in, a, in a house in ancient Israel. You go in there, you close the door, and you whisper, like, hey, I want to tell you a secret. Okay, things that you're like, nobody's going to know about this. And on a human level, that would guarantee confidentiality most of the time. He says those things will one day be proclaimed from the housetops. Now, ancient houses were flat. So if you really wanted to, to, to get a message out to the neighborhood, you'd go up onto your roof and you would shout it from the housetops. It would be kind of like a pulpit or a platform where everything would be made known. So the idea here is, hey, the, the text messages that you sent in private, they'll be talked about on the national news. We've seen that kind of thing happen. Emails that are sent that people are just being very candid Boom, here they are, leaked, and the whole world is now reading other people's emails. That kind of thing happening on an infinite scale on Judgment Day. Every secret deed, every secret word, every motivation of the heart, every hypocrisy will be completely, totally revealed before the world. That, that ought to be sobering truth to us. And by the way, Jesus is not saying anything different than the Bible has said elsewhere. Back up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Back in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Basically, go to the middle of your Bible and just go right a little ways. Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon, and he talks about all of his efforts through life to try to find fulfillment, and he says everything is vanity. And he goes through all of these ways that people try to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment, and in the end, the final estimation is they can't provide that. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He surveyed all of life, gone on this philosophical journey. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Reverence God, glorify God, obey him. For, here's the reason, God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. Sobering, every secret thing. The same thought appears in the book of Romans. So you think, well, this is kind of Old Testament judgment. Like, I don't really like this kind of stuff. We, we have a nice, friendly God in the New Testament who won't do such things. No, the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says God's going to judge one day in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So Paul affirms this reality. Jesus affirms this reality. We can go to the book of Revelation 20 verse 12 that the books will be opened and every work will be judged. And even Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we do. 
Oh, beloved, that we would live in light of this reality. If we're going to drive out hypocrisy, if we're going to take this warning seriously, we need to realize that one day we will be standing before God, we will give an account for everything. Oh, that we would be genuine, real people. See, God already knows our hearts. Oh, that we would live humbly before God and sincerely before the world. Oh, that there would be no difference between who we are before God and who we are before the world. That we would realize we cannot fool God in the end. Where we would realize that while we may hide sin from other people, we cannot hide it from God. Would to God that we would fear him so fully that we would confess sin now so it will not be exposed then. Those are, those are your options. Either I confess sin fully and openly now, or it will be brought to light on Judgment Day. Which would you rather? Which would you rather? Would you rather confess sin now, and maybe have a few people be like, oh, wow, that was really going on in your life, or would you rather face the wrath of Almighty God on Judgment Day? It's a sobering choice. So that's the first danger, the danger of hypocrisy. It's like yeast, it works through everything. Is there hypocrisy in your life? Examine your heart. Are there places where you are duplicitous? Are there places where you are play-acting? Are there places where you behave as a Christian here, but you behave as if you weren't a Christian over here? Are you a different person when the doors are closed and when you have secrecy or anonymity, which there really is no such thing, as we find out, like anything that you do online or any text message you send, the Internet never forgets. Are you one person in private and a different person in public? Are you a different person in church and a different person at work? Hypocrisy is a real danger, a deadly spiritual danger, one that will keep us from being effective witnesses for Christ. Second danger is the danger of fear. Now, on one level, fear is a natural God-given emotion that protects us. If we never had fear, we would do stupid stuff, right? Like, you, we, you can see the videos on, you know, America's Funniest Video where people are like, hey, watch this, and there's a little bit of intoxication involved, and people's sense of fear is sort of depressed, and they, they do things that they normally wouldn't do, and they get hurt. Like, fear's a good thing, right? You're, you're going for a walk, and you hear a really loud bark from a dog. You, you immediately kind of like, hey, what's going on? Then you realize it's a dog behind the fence. This happens to me every day when I go on my walk. The same dog scares me at the same place on my walk. That's a natural, God-given sort of self-preservation mechanism so we don't get mauled by dogs or hit by buses and that kind of thing. But fear can also be a dangerous emotion when it begins to govern and grip our hearts, when we begin to fear man rather than we fear God. Look back with me in Luke 12, verse 4. And I say unto you, my friends, that that phrase, and I say to you, will serve as a transition. Give us kind of the bones of this paragraph. We did it again in verse 8 when he transitioned thoughts. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear, fear him, which after he hath killed, hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So he says, fear God, not man. You find yourself gripped by fear of man. You're, you're constantly afraid of, man, what do people think of me? And what, 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 they, what would they say of it? And, and then when people praise you, you're like, yeah, I'm really happy. They liked what I did. And then when someone says something that's, that's negative, it totally crushes you. And you're on this emotional roller coaster from fear and happiness based on what other people think. You find yourself living captive to other people's opinions. It's called the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. It is a trap. It is a danger. It it, it will get in the way of us being effective witnesses for Christ and living to the glory of God. How do we deal with the fear of man? 
Well, Jesus gives us some guidance here. He says, if you're going to drive out the fear of, fear of man, you must fear God more than you fear people. At the bottom of, it, bottom of it, we fear most what is largest in our minds. So your boss at work, man, if he in your mind is like, man, he is a really powerful, I'm scared of him. What if God was the greatest being in our thinking? What if God was the highest being in our imagination? What if God were as glorious as the Bible says he is? What if God were the one that we fear more than anyone else? Those who, who fear God will not fear man. So that's what he's saying in verse 4 and 5. Is he's, don't fear people who can just kill you physically. Okay, the Pharisees, they had a whole lot of clout in the synagogues. They could have you excommunicated from the synagogue, which you're like, ah, not a big deal, just go somewhere else. But that, that's like you're, you're cut off completely from the social life of the, of the land. You're cut off from your family. Like they would do funerals for people who would turn to Christ to say, you're dead to us. They could kick you out of the synagogues. You read the book of Acts, which uh, remind you is volume two of Luke's history of early Christianity. You will see the religious people bringing fierce persecution on the people of God, like there's a guy named Stephen that they literally have him stoned to death. Like, you read over that. That's a pretty horrible way to die is to have a bunch of people throw rocks at you until you are crushed to death. Like, they're doing stuff like that in the book of Acts. That's pretty scary if there were people out trying to kill us. You think of all the things that you could be afraid of, like, well, someone could say something nasty about me, or they could embarrass me, or they could shame me. Can we be honest? Somebody killing you takes the cake. Right? Like that's the ultimate thing that is terrifying to us, is the fear of death. Because don't fear people who can just kill the body, but then that's it. Once you're dead, they can do nothing more to you. So I tell you, verse 5, whom you should fear, fear the one who has power, has authority to cast you into hell. The one who judges after death, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Fear the God who has authority over eternity. Think of that. Don't fear people who can merely kill your body. Fear God. Don't fear people who can merely ruin your reputation online. Don't fear people who can merely look askance at you. Don't fear people who would merely think down on you. Fear God. Your jurisdiction ends with death. Our enemies are powerless to inflict eternal harm. What what is life compared to eternity? What is physical death compared to heaven or hell? What is this brief moment of life compared to endless ages with Christ? You see, selling out Christ to extend life is foolish. You realize this, right? You might be like, hey, I'm going to deny Christ to make my life last longer, but you will still die. It's a sobering thought to realize we are all going to die one way or another. To crassly preserve my life in just a, just a cowardly kind of way, is in the final estimation simply delaying the inevitable. Ever do that where you just kind of push something off, push something off? But you're going to have to do it anyway, regardless. I could go to the doctor, like, push it, push it. Eventually, you're going to have to do it. You're going to, it's, going to, it's going to occur. Death is that way. This is why fear death. God is the one who has authority over both physical death and eternal judgment. You notice that in verse 5. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Ultimately, it's not the Pharisees. Who, who are doing the killing. God is ultimately the one who has power over life and death, the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Put yourself in his hands. Now, when we talk about fearing, what does it mean to fear God? We see this idea over and over again through the Bible, book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. It's also the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we see later on in Proverbs. This idea of fearing God. 
And what that fear will look like it will, will depend on what your relationship is to God. All right, if you don't have a right relationship with him through Christ, that kind of fear will be the, the kind of terror of eternal judgment, of eternal wrath. It's a spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, for those who know and love God, those who have a relationship with him through Christ, that fear will look like humble worship and awe. It's reverence. Never do we have this attitude where God's just my buddy and like, hey, he doesn't matter to me. Fearing God means God has great weight in our lives. Fearing God means he is real and we, we, we are recognizing the, the, the reality that one day we will stand before him. But there is a right way and a wrong way to fear God. Those who don't know Christ, and maybe you're here today and you are not a Christian. You don't know Jesus as your Savior. You have never repented. You don't have assurance that you belong to Christ. The only kind of fear you can have of God is the God who it will be your judge who will cast you into hell one day. That is a guarantee. That is a horrifying picture that we get in Scripture that whosoever was not found written in the, the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God will judge you. Even those who claim to be Christians who are not. Matthew 7 says that just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're going to enter heaven. So they'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And that's eternal. There's no like do-over on that. There's no, hey, we'll check back in in a thousand years. But that's it. Eternity without Christ. Eternity facing conscious torment in hell. That's terrifying. If you're not a believer... You don't know Jesus as your Savior. That is what you can look forward to. You are one heartbeat away from standing before your judge. You are one breath away from standing before your creator. The creator you have spurned, the judge that you have ignored. You say, well, I'm a good person. Saying trusting in your good works to get you to heaven is to shake a fist in the face of God. Because he has said that good works will not justify. You're saying, I know you said that, but I've got a better idea, God. I cannot think of a more direct way of rebelling against God than rejecting the way that he has provided for salvation, which is through faith in Christ. That type of fear is an unholy dread. It is the nameless terror that leads sinners to run away from God and hide under the fig leaves. It's the kind of fear that says, I'm going to try to hide from God, try to cower from him, try to ignore God, try to downplay God. To run into the shrubbery to avoid his approaching footsteps as Adam and Eve did. The gospel of Jesus Christ, however, radically transforms what fear means. The gospel transforms this fear from dread to awe. It's still respect. It's still recognizing God is awesome. He's great. He is weighty. He is real. He will judge one day. But I no longer have to fear his wrath. This kind of fear fuels our worship and our affection for God. This kind of fear sees God as truly awesome and comes before him in reverence. And it feels holy joy. This kind of fear does not merely tremble at the thought of divine wrath. That's all the lost know. God's going to judge one day. But it also bows at the thought of divine providence and his present care. What does it mean to fear God as a believer? It means to have respect and reverence, and awe before the full panoply of God's glory. It's not just singling out one attribute and being like, I like that one, but saying, this is who God is. And isn't it interesting, this is what our text does, is Jesus now pivots from verses 4 and 5, where he talks about the negative aspect of fearing God, he's going to judge one day, to this positive aspect of, by the way, he's going to provide, and then he circles back around and says, don't fear men. 
Both God's care and God's judgment are the fuel for the right kind of fear of God, the full panoply of his attributes, both his love and his grace and his holiness and his justice. So if we're going to deal with this fear of man, you've got to fear God more than you fear man. The one who has control and authority over eternal destinies is to be feared above any human being on the planet. But he says this as well. If you're going to overcome the fear of man, you need to trust God. That's what he gets to in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You notice how he ties it in and don't fear people? You're of more value than many sparrows. He says, trust me. Trust your Father in heaven. Not only is God the judge of the universe... But he is the loving father of his people. Fearing God involves admiring the full panoply of his attributes. Yes, he's omnipotent judge, verses 4 and 5. But he's also the loving father and the caring creator of verses 6 and 7. So the illustration Jesus has is really memorable. We sang about it. His eye is on the sparrow. says, you can get five sparrows for two, what we have here, farthings. I don't know what a farthing is. I don't go to the store and pay in farthings. You don't pay in denarii. This is the, 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 the currency here is called an asarion. Now, here's what an asarion is. It's about a half hour's wage. So, so he says, normally, you can get five sparrows for two asarion, about an hour's worth of wage. You get five birds for an hour's worth of wage. So say you make 10 bucks an hour, you get five birds for $10. Now, interestingly, in Matthew, Jesus says you can get two birds for one asarion. So you think, well, shouldn't it be four? Well, we're going to throw a fifth one in for free. Here's what he's saying. Even the the fifth sparrow that gets thrown into the bargain, just be like, hey, we had a buy four, get get one free day going on here. It's like God remembers that. This is the smallest kind of thing you can buy at the market. This is when you're going to the checkout aisle, the little things that you can just kind of throw in for the, the extra change. He says, God notices even that. Sparrows are not impressive birds, right? We don't see a sparrow like, whoa, dude, there's a sparrow that just flew by. Now, if you see a bald eagle, that's pretty sweet. You see a sparrow come by, you don't even notice it. Just sort of the smallest of birds. They're just little, you get five of them for, for two asarion. It's just God knows them. God remembers all the sparrows. And I even like the way this is worded in the Greek. They, they put a little um, ending on there that is to say the little sparrows. God cares about even the little sparrows. Just the smallest of sparrows. The God who created the sparrows remembers every single one of them. The way it's worded in Matthew, there's not one that falls without his creator knowing. According to National Geographic, there are between 50 billion and 430 billion birds in the world. Now, if you, if you pay 50 billion, 430, that's a pretty wide margin they're giving themselves there, right? 50 billion and 430 billion, like that, there's a lot of room between those two numbers. Which is basically saying that scientists don't know how many birds there are in the world. Like with all of our computer imageries and all of the ways you can try to figure this out, they're like, we, we don't know. We just kind of guess. Isn't that interesting? Even in the year 2022, don't know how many birds there are in the world. And this verse is saying, God sees and cares for every single one of those 50 billion to 430 billion birds in the world that even the scientists don't know about. Even the learned scientists at National Geographic are simply guessing at the number of birds, and God does not have to guess. His knowledge is so extensive and perfect, he knows infallibly what scientists can only begin to guesstimate. 
There are, as R.C. Sproul used to say, no renegade molecules in the universe. Every molecule, every bird, every hair on our head, every second of history is under the care and providence of God. Verse 7 adds, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, verse 6 is not one of those birds that's forgotten. On one level, you say, well, God knows about it. He's up there in heaven, and he can kind of see what's going on. But the idea of seeing in Scripture is more than God standing by as a passive observer. God is not a passive observer. We are not deists here today. We don't think that God just created the universe and is just kind of watching it operate according to natural laws. No, he is actively upholding and working all things according to the counsel of his will. In the book of Genesis, when God, God's going to provide a lamb for Abraham, God will provide himself a lamb. You know what the Hebrew word is there? God will see to it. God will see to it that a lamb is provided. This doesn't mean that God will observe it happening, but he will see to it himself. That is how God's knowledge is in Scripture. It's not just passive things that he knows by observing the universe. He knows them because he causes them. He knows them because he watches over. So this is more than just saying, hey, guys, you know, don't be afraid because God knows what's going on. It doesn't really help for God to simply know what's going on if he's not in control. That's not a super comforting thought to me. The God's just there watching all these horrible things happen on earth, being like, sorry, guys, I wish I could help. No, he's saying, I'm in control. I'm the Lord, I give and I take away, and nothing can happen to you except that which I decree permit to happen to you. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, that's almost sort of stereotypical language in the Bible. You can read in the book of Kings and, and in Samuel where you're going to protect someone. You say, not one hair of your head will fall to the earth. That's a way to say, I'm not going to hurt you. This is God's way of saying, there is nothing that can happen to you, no harm that can befall you, except what I in my good providence and in my righteousness see will happen. He says, fear not, therefore, I'm in control. I oversee every bird and I govern the fate of every hair. Everything bows to my will. Don't be afraid. Now, I love the end of verse 7. Fear not, therefore... You're of more value than many, many sparrows. Okay, God cares for the little sparrows that flutter around that we don't even know how to count. You're of more value. You're made in the image of God. We are made with dignity and worth and value. The homeless people that you pass on your way to church, they just like, oh, there's another guy over there. Someone made in the image of God with dignity and worth and value before God. A soul for whom Christ died. How much more for us who are the children of God, who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. This is incredible. God's providence controls all things. He cares for and values his children immensely. And the value he places on us cannot be fathomed. If he cares for birds that will fall and be no more, how much more will he care for those who are made in his image and remade in the image of his Son? In the, in the argument of Romans 8, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? See, how much does God value you and me? He values us so much, he gave us the thing of greatest value, his own son. He gave up Jesus for us and allowed his son to be tortured to death on the cross for our eternal salvation. Why would we think that he would forget us in the midst of persecution and hardship? If we get a hold of these two thoughts, God, fear God more than we fear man. Trust God. These two thoughts are like armies to drive out the invaders of fear. These are weapons that God puts in our hand to go to war against fear. Are you fearful this morning? 
man, I'm watching the news and everything going on and over. I'm just so scared and biting the fingernails and just consumed with fear. Go to war against fear. Fear God more than you fear man. Trust God, the God who controls all things. But we come to a final danger that we must go to war against if we are to be fearless witnesses for Christ. And that is shame. Verse 8. I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Notice that preposition before that gets repeated four times. We're talking about what happens publicly. Fear, what we dealt with in verses 4 to 7 deals with fear. It's sort of an internal attitude. Shame sort of is similar to fear, but it has its orientation public perception, right? Like we could be shame and and all these things. Like what, what do people think? While fear tends to be inwardly focused, shame is outwardly imposed. Fear trembles at what might happen to me. Shame trembles at what others might think of me. So they're very similar ideas. But if there's one thing that keeps us from being a faithful witness to Christ, it is shame. And if I confess to Jesus before men, if I take full ownership of my relationship with Jesus and testify of, of who Jesus is before other people, and they'll think I'm weird, they'll think I'm a wacko, they'll think that I'm a crazy Christian, they'll have all these thoughts, they might even... That's shame. So how do we deal with shame? How do we have boldness in our, in our witness before Christ? Very similar to what we have seen throughout this paragraph. Seize hold of the promises of God. I drive out hypocrisy by believing that God will one day judge. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. How do I drive out fear? By believing that God is greater than man and seizing hold of his promise that he will care and watch over me. How do I drive out shame? I drive out shame with the promises of future reward and future glory. Verses 8 and 9 are two sides of one coin. We've got contrasting words. We've got the word confess, and we've got the word deny. They're, they're almost like antonyms. Now, confess, we think, oh, I've got to go confess my sins, and here's what I did. The idea of confess is maybe even the idea of profess. I'm going to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. We often draw back in shame from confessing Christ. Shame will silence us. It will muzzle us when we ought to speak. The idea of confessing is to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or a person, to say, I'm, I'm with Jesus. I, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. I am with him, and I'm not ashamed to identify with him. Now, let's be honest. That's a pretty easy thing to do on a superficial level in our culture. You put a fish on the back of your car, nobody's going to be like, let me try and rear-end you and run you off the road. Like, that, that's not the culture we live in. In fact, it's, you know, it's campaign season. A number of people will be running for office, and they'll be at pains to tell the city of Mobile, I'm a conservative Christian. Because there's currency, there's, there's value in that sort of politically to be identified as a Christian. It was not so in the first century. Who was Jesus? He was a crucified criminal. For the Romans, crucifixion was like the most humiliating and, 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 and embarrassing way to be executed. Only slaves, traitors, and the worst of criminals could be, could be crucified. So when the Romans put down the rebellion of Spartacus, you know, I'm Spartacus, no, I'm, when they put down that rebellion from the slave Spartacus, they lined the, the road on either side with crosses and crucified thousands of these slaves as a warning to anyone else in the Roman Empire, you better not defy us. Crucifixion was a way where you would basically be tortured to death over hours and over days and be pinned out there naked before the world to, to, to mock and to shame. 
as you basically suffocated to death. It was absolutely horrible. It was absolutely humiliating. The cross was not an image uh, of artistic work where you're like, I've got a cross around my neck. No, it was the most shameful thing to be done. There's an image that's been discovered, scrawled on a wall in Rome uh, or in some kind of, some kind of record where it says, so-and-so, Alexander worships his God, and it's got this Christian bowing before a cross with someone on the cross with a donkey head. That's, that's how the world viewed Christians. Worshiping a crucified Messiah was ludicrous. It was obscene. It was absurd. It was offensive. So to say, I'm with Christ, like, really, you're with that crucified wannabe Messiah. Absolute shame. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. It's stupidity. It is insanity. To identify with Jesus was shameful. So to confess Christ was costly. Jesus said, if you, if you do that, you go out there on that limb. You go out there and subject yourself to public humiliation and ridicule by saying, I'm a Christian, even putting your life at risk. He says, one day I will confess you before the angels of God. You will be publicly identified and welcomed into my presence. You confess me now, you'll be confessed then. Now, confessing Christ is not an optional extra for the super spiritual. This is not a, hey, if you want to get to a higher echelon of Christianity, you do this. No, to be saved, you must confess Christ. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 talks about this. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Which means if you don't do those things, you will be lost. So we confess Jesus is Lord. Christos Kurios, he is the Lord, rather than Caesar being Lord. So you'll be saved. This confession is more than just words that you recite. Okay, confession is more than just being like, well, I recited the creed, I'm saved, or I prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm saved. This is to commit your entire heart and life to Jesus Christ. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Staking your eternity on Jesus, he says, you'll be confessed before the angels of God. You'll be welcomed into heaven's glory one day. What a promise. Now, the opposite is true. The one who repudiates me before men, the one who denies me before men, the one who disowns me before men, will be denied, disowned, repudiated before the angels of God. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, we're not talking about a momentary lapse. We think about Peter. He denied Christ, but it was a temporary lapse. When he realized what he'd done, he went out, he whipped, wept bitterly. He was restored by Jesus. We all have those Peter moments where we're like, man, I really blew it. We're talking about a lifetime of denying, of repudiating Jesus, being like, nope, I, I, I know he's Messiah, but I don't want to sign up to be with him because that's going to cost me too much. So those individuals will be denied, denied before the angels of God. So the question is, do we confess Christ or do we repudiate him? If you're not a Christian here today, those are the only two options. There is no room for mushy neutrality in the middle. Either you confess him and you own him and you embrace him for who he is and his truth and his message, or you reject him. Now, people today want to pick and choose. I like the grace and mercy of Jesus, but, man, the, the, the sexual ethic of the, of, of the Christian religion, of the Bible, is just a little too much to swallow. More and more in our culture, getting to a place, if you believe that you know, there is male and female and that these genders are not assigned by human beings but are, but are determined by God, if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, we're getting to a place in our culture where you might as well be sort of a white supremacist if you believe those things. The culture is just seeing that as, as hateful. We're getting to a place where we're, we're agreeing with what the Bible says will be, will be costly and will bring shame. 
when we confess Christ, when we sign up to be with him or when we repudiate him. Now, verse 10, whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. This is the so-called unpardonable sin. Jesus adds this warning against repudiating him. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This is a sin that will never be forgiven. Now, what does this mean? It's Cliff Notes version. Parallel passages in Matthew and in Mark. It's when the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, you're empowered by Satan. Now, that's not just a misunderstanding. They're making a deliberate determination to completely and utterly reject Jesus. They're going to reject what Jesus has done by the power of the Spirit and ascribe it to Satan. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It doesn't just mean you say something bad about the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's more than just uttering some words intemperately about the Holy Spirit or getting some things wrong. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to totally reject the Spirit's testimony about Jesus and thus permanently and finally reject the gospel. It is a refusal to walk the path of pardon. Okay, how does God save sinners? The Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment, draws us to Christ, gives us new life. If there's no Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. You understand that. If any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. So to say, I'm going to just throw the Spirit and reject him, I'm going to reject the gospel, is to reject any hope of salvation. God in his kindness and his mercy gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, I beg you, turn to Christ today. Don't, don't reject, don't blaspheme the Spirit by rejecting his testimony of Jesus. By the way, if you're wondering, have I committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't. Because that means there's still a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. There's still a concern for the things of God. Those who have committed this sin do not care that they have committed this sin. The Pharisees. Those who just want nothing to do with God and go to their graves defying God. There's no forgiveness for that final rejection. Verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you into the synagogues and to the magistrates and the powers... Take no thought how or what things ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, shall teach you in that same hour what ye, shall, what ye ought to say. Notice how the Holy Spirit is mentioned in verses 10 to 12. You can blaspheme the Spirit. You can rely upon the Spirit. So how do we drive out shame? We drive out shame by keeping an eye on the future rewards of, I confess Jesus now, it's worth it in the end. I repudiate Jesus now. Eternal damnation. It's worth it to confess Christ. But we also drive out shame with the promise of the Spirit's help now. right? So one has an eye on the future, eternal glory. That will keep me faithful in the present. But also this promise that in extraordinary times of testing, when you get dragged in the synagogues and before the kings and authorities, this gets worked out in the book of Acts. It says the Holy Spirit will give you the strength. The Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom you need. Now, by the way, verse 11 is not saying, hey, don't prepare sermons. This is, not a, this is not about preaching. This is not about normal church ministry. This is about those extraordinary times that you cannot prepare for. Like, what do I do if I'm ever being burned at the stake? Hey, the Spirit will give you His grace that you will need in that moment. So this is not an excuse for shoddy sermon prep. I've heard people be like, well, I just came up with a message right while I was sitting there in the pews. I've heard messages like that, and none of them have been good. Right? The messages that have been prepared through the study of God's Word tend to be more edifying. The point here is that in those times of extraordinary testing, of extraordinary persecution, when you're put on the spot, the Spirit will give you power. So in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, 
Peter and John are dragged in before the Sanhedrin. And Peter gives that extraordinary testimony that there is salvation under no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It's through Jesus and him alone, through his name. And what does it say there? It says that they looked at them, they realized they were ignorant and unlearned men. They took record that they'd been with Jesus. The Spirit gave them the words to give this extraordinary testimony in the moment. Now, just a, just a quick note. This, this promise is not a promise that you will be able to weasel your way out and be acquitted. Rather, it's a promise that the Spirit will give you the courage to testify of Christ, even if it costs you your life. Nowhere are we promised in Scripture that we as Christians will face easy lives and that you know, if we say just the right things, we'll be able to weasel our way out of persecution. But what we are promised is for the Holy Spirit to give us the courage and the wisdom that we need when we need it. In those times, he will be there to give us the strength that we need. Some great dangers that face us. We're not just talking about like tornadoes could come down on us. We're not even talking about, well, the Pharisees could come after you. The greatest dangers that we face as Christians do not come from the world outside of us. I think a lot of people get so caught about what's going on out there and being afraid about what's going on out there and what's Disney doing and what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and, 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 and the Equality Act. Oh, yeah, we need to be aware of things like that. But the greatest danger, not the attacks of the world. That's a given. The world's always going to be hostile to Christ. The greatest danger we need to be concerned about is what's going on within us. Is there hypocrisy that makes me be fake when I ought to be real? Is there hypocrisy that's covering over debilitating sin with a veneer of religious exterior piety. The greatest danger comes from within us, is fear that would, would, would cripple us. We fear men more than we fear God. The greatest danger comes from within us, the shame that would silence us. Serious warnings. The question is, will you, will you heed them? Warnings are only good if they are heeded. Warnings are only good if they are listened to and followed. So will you follow these warnings? Father, help us to trust you. May we not be crippled by hypocrisy and fear and shame.